With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 42, Caught on Camera. In this episode, Bob revealed to the listeners new information from the surveillance video from Melanie Esmond's house. Now, for those of you who don't know, Melanie Esmond was the neighbor of the Melgars, and her house was right across the street from theirs. And it's been an eventful week, so let's get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, before Mike gets started with all of his questions, I just wanted to address all of you for the people that are on social media and they're on our YouTube channel. You're very well aware of this, uh, but I wanted to address it here first thing up front before we move on, because I'm sure some of the questions here uh, will be addressing the the reveal from this week's episode. So the first thing I want to do is apologize that I, so I, I, I wouldn't say jump the gun, but in, in retrospect, I was too strong coming out with the fact that it was absolutely the killer Jim Melgar pulling into the driveway across the street. Uh, and I say that because at the time, last somebody, had, I, don't, I don't know if you got it, but somebody on the main Facebook page had asked the question, like, what was it like in the moment you found it? And it was exciting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that's, that's relatable. You know, you work on these cases for so long and you find a big break and yeah, it's exciting. And you want to tell everyone about it right when you find out. Right, and that's that's what happened. So Mike and I, once we got the surveillance footage, we were going through it for hours and hours and hours and hours. And Mike caught the movement at 12.05, uh, the light tracking across. I had originally documented it as a vehicle going from right to left. And then as we were watching it, as I was speeding up the video, was when we saw that swing into the driveway. And for those of you that haven't been onto our YouTube channel, just look up Truth and Justice, all of the surveillance footage that we have available to us from 11.35 p.m. till 4 a.m. It's up there in five different files because that's how it was given to us. Those are all up on our YouTube channel now, and there's also uh, the initial explainer about 
how we know that this was a car pulling into the driveway. And during that process, Mike, we were speeding up and slowing down the video, and we were certain, like once, and it's one of those things now that I'm looking at it that once you see it, that's all you see, right? If that makes sense. So it was like once, once we could see that light swinging up into the driveway, that's all we could see. That's all. That's all, that's all you saw every time, and we checked it and triple checked it and quadruple checked it over and over and over and over again, and we sent it to several people to have them look at it. And to see if they were seeing what we were seeing, and we even we we sent it to the Seacrest. We said Liz Liz forwarded it on, I believe, to Kathleen Zellner, and um, it was it was a very very exciting time uh, because this we thought this was a big break in the case. And a way that I'll explain, I'm sure through the questions, not so much you know because people ask like, well, what does it matter? You don't see a license plate or a car, but it does have a significance towards uh, the investigation that we'll get into. But it, it was very exciting, you know, and that was, we were kind of cramming before I left for New Orleans for CrimeCon, got to CrimeCon on Thursday, the episode dropped on Sunday while I was on a plane, got back late Sunday night and quick to get through together that video that I put up on YouTube that explained, and it's the, um, at this point, I think, a poorly titled video that says uh, the video of the the killer pulling into the driveway. And in that video, I'm an absolute, just as I was in the podcast, also in the video, absolutely certain that that's what we're seeing. And for most people, the response from that post and watching that video, as I explained, and you know, we, we I, I showed each and every little part as to why I know that's what this is. And the response was probably 99% of people that they all see it now and they agree. And it's this huge bombshell, which again, I thought it was too. But then I just kept going over it and 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 over it. And then on, um, it was yesterday, so which was Tuesday morning for us, uh, we're getting ready to start writing this week's episode, and I wanted to go over it again for the millionth time to, you know, to, to make sure I was seeing what I was seeing. Uh, you know, there had been a couple comments on the Facebook page, like, to me, it looks like a vehicle coming from the right, not from the left. Uh, if you remember in the episode, what it looked to me as though a car was approaching from the left and then turned up into the driveway. But a couple people had said, it looks to me like a car coming from the right. And I'd even explain. It's like, well, I thought that too until I saw the swing. Look at the swing. You can see the light swinging. There's no question about it. But then I just, I started thinking more and more about it and watched it and watched it and watched it. And then I started picking up on some similarities between the car that I thought is pulling up into the driveway. And uh, at 1234, there's a car that approaches from the right and passes by the driveway. Now, at a glance, those look nothing alike. The car coming from the right uh, just lights up the area. The grass between the car and the, the car that's parked in the Espen's driveway is lit up. The side of the Camaro is lit up. The side of the truck completely lights up. You see shadows from the mirrors. You don't see any of that in the video that I believe is the car pulling up into the driveway. But as I looked closer, I could see some I don't know, artifact or something, but there were, there were some similarities. So we really started breaking it down and we'd see, well, in this video where the car we know is passing from the right to the left, sure, the, the grass lights up on the side of the Camaro, but in the video where the car is believed to be pulling up into the driveway, we see a little bit of grass lighting up next to the Camaro. Same thing on the truck. The truck completely lights up from the headlights from the one passing through. And then when we looked really close and, and, and had to go the other way, we kind of sped it up to help see the swing. But when we slowed it way down, we could see for just a frame or two, the side of the truck does light up, but just a little bit. 
And so I, I think maybe that's just the reflection, you know, the headlights reflecting coming up on a car coming from the left, hitting the Camaro and reflecting back onto the truck. And, and so essentially, I just I, I went from being 100% certain to being not sure anymore about exactly what we're seeing. Now, there's still there's a lot more to come about the surveillance footage. I'm going to talk about on Sunday. It is all still very relevant. And this, I'm still, I'm not telling you that that's not a car pulling in the driveway, but what I'm telling you is I can't say that I'm 100% certain. That's why I made the the correction video or the follow-up video on YouTube, and that's why I want to right up front tell you guys before we even get started with this, not because I, I'm certain that the information I put out is false, but because I put it out with such certainty, and and many of you, you know, trust me and believe, if I'm telling you this is what's there, you're believing it. And I just ethically can't leave that out there for you to think that I'm 100% certain. I was at the time. I 100% was at the time. And, and so was Mike. Yeah, definitely I was. Yeah, we all were. And it, it took several times to kind of come off of that. But I don't want you to move forward believing that I am 100% certain about this because at this point, I am not 100% certain about it. And, and in hindsight, I regret my approach to it coming out so strong. I mean, that was, it should show you how certain I was about it, but for me to come out and state as fact that this is absolutely what was there is what I believed at the time, but I don't think that is necessarily the case. Uh, there are definitely indicators on that video to indicate that that could have been a car coming from the right and just passing by. If that's true, then that would, that I, I believe, you know, some people mentioned, well, one could have head, high beams on and one could have low right. beams on. Or even uh, the difference between a car and an SUV. Right. I don't necessarily think that's the case. Just even from the, that, that may adjust the height as far as how it hits the grass and stuff. But when we watch it track across the top of the screen, the headlights for the car that drives all the way by that we know that happens, and you can see the headlights, they're bright uh, and they're lighting up the road. But the car that is, or the, the incident at 1205 that I believe is the car pulling in the Melgar's driveway, we don't see that. So I think that likely if that, if that was a car that came from the right and passed by to the left, and it was not a car that came from the left and pulled into the driveway, I believe that what's happening there is the car's lights are off and just the like fog lights or running lights are on, like the yellow kind of parking lights. On. So there's, there's something that's projecting some light, but it's very little light, nothing like the headlights, because it's not just the one car where we see that every other car that drives by, because there's what the one that goes from right to left, there's one, two, three that go from left to right. And in all of those cases, the lights are extremely bright when they drive down the road. There's no question about it. The only question comes in with this one particular one. So I'm not prepared to say that that's not a car pulling in the driveway, but I, I do want to point out that I am absolutely not certain that that's what it is. I think it probably could go either way at this point. So I apologize for leading you guys down the path of, of stating that this is an absolute fact. I want to make very clear that I don't necessarily think that it's an absolute fact. I think a lot more investigative work needs to be done, and that's being done. I've already been in contact with a, uh, a photogrammetry expert who I've asked to review the video footage to get an expert on it. As I mentioned in the episode, I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy who's trying to figure out what's going on in the video. Uh, but we are working on getting an actual video grammatry expert on the, uh, to review it and come on and explain what is happening in that video. But uh, thank you guys for the patience. Again, I apologize for 
gosh, I want to say something like miscommunication, but that's not what it was. It was just uh, it was just an error on my part, um, and the error being specifically in my delivery of that information. All right, let's get to the questions. This first one comes from Liesel. I'd love to see a reenactment with the exact same video equipment at the exact same time of night, one car turning and one car going straight. Is this possible? I mean, I'm sure it's possible with a lot of work that um, I don't think we want to put on to the Esmonds. Um, they've been very helpful. Uh, I say they, I've only spoken with Melanie, um, but she's been very, very kind and very helpful and forthcoming and willing to help in any way she can. The issue is the camera is not where it used to be. They moved the camera to another location. Um, of course, it's hardwired in and everything, so it, it wouldn't be the same angles that we had back then. Um, so we might be able to recreate something similarly with a camera, but it wouldn't be the same camera uh, that we had back then, that, that they had then in the same location. Pamela says, The timeline of activity on the neighbor's surveillance video as we know it so far is 12.05 a.m., a car potentially pulls into the Melgar driveway. 12.32, a car drives past toward the cul-de-sac. 12.34, a car drives past away from the cul-de-sac. And 1.13, a car potentially pulls out of the Melgar driveway. The Kingwood invaders had two vehicles. What if the car passing by and turning around is a second vehicle for the home invaders? It's likely not a neighbor driving by and a little late for strangers going down the wrong street. What are your thoughts, Bob? Well, there's a couple things there. One of my biggest frustrations, as I stated in the episode, is the police did not canvas the area in a way that could make these videos very helpful. Uh, and what I mean by that, so we they knew by 6.30 p.m., documented in the report, 6.30 p.m., they knew there was a camera pointed out towards the street. Even if they thought it was just the driveway, they knew it was dark and headlights shine into people's yards and things. So knowing that, there's only 14 houses between the Melgars and Esmonds and the cul-de-sac. That's seven on each side. So what they should have done is go to each of those houses, speak to those people, and say, did... Right then, what's fresh in their mind, did anybody come or go from your house last night? If so, what time? And they could track. So say the, uh, because we have the, the 1232 and 1234 vehicles could likely be the same. I mean, they may not be too, but I mean, you have a car late at night, drive down towards the end of the cul-de-sac and exactly two minutes later, drive back the other way. Now that could be two different cars, but that's information you could confirm. So. Take those two occurrences, for example. If you speak to everyone and they're all like, no, we were home all night. Nobody came over. Nobody left. Nobody drove down the street. We can't find any reason or anybody on that street to account for who would have driven down there and back. Well, now, because it's such a short street and a cul-de-sac at the end that doesn't go anywhere, then we would know that someone was on that street that had no reason to be on that street in the window of time when Jim Melgar was murdered. That's significant. And now, does that point to, okay, now I know who did it? No. But what it does point to is there's someone who did this that's not Sandy Melgar. Because the biggest issue in this investigation is the blinders that the detectives had right away. Their theory was it was Sandy. They couldn't get off it. They didn't get off it. And so they didn't investigate any other angles. For example, the Kingwood home invasion with Sinead Gonzalez. You know, th that's something, I, I mean, I read it to you out of a textbook. That is how these investigations should work. We're, it's, it's such a specific MO. Were there other crimes committed in the area around this time with the same specific MO? 
And then you start to investigate those people. I mean, they had access to Sinead at the time. They had access to Oscar Garcia at the time because they were still awaiting trial. And so they had people they could compare DNA to, and they had people they could bring in and question about it. But they didn't because they were always assuming it had to be Sandy. So had they investigated down that street and found out, did anybody, because there's another car that drives by at 1.51 a.m. There's another one that drives by at 3.45 a.m. or something, or somewhere around there. Had they, they tried to account for those vehicles, they could have figured out if someone was in the neighborhood that shouldn't have been there. Uh, she mentions the 1.13 a.m. Uh, that appears to be a car pulling out of the Melgar's driveway. Um, I'm kind of hesitant to uh, to clearly say that one thing one thing or another is happening. Um, we're going to discuss this more on Sunday, that particular occurrence. And that's something I definitely want the photogrammetry expert to look at if we can get get connected and, and, and get him to review these files or these videos. But you know, to me, I'm not exactly sure what is happening in that video. I have thoughts on what's happening. I, I think it, it does look like maybe someone is leaving the house if they're if that's what it is. That's someone with their lights turned completely off. And I think that what we're seeing there is likely reverse lights with a car pulling in with its lights completely off because they just they, they kind of make a swing that looks like it's coming out of the driveway and then shut off immediately. And uh, with them shutting off like that, the only thing I can think of is Reverse lights. You're backing up when you shift into drive. The lights shut off. If that's the case, that means our killers are smarter than they than they would seem to be if they just pulled in the driveway with their lights on, like maybe like we talked about at twelve oh five. That if they're pulling out with their lights completely off, they very likely pulled in with their lights completely off. And if we see that, the only thing that we're able to to see on that car is just the reverse lights. If it's what it appears to be then the, the, the surveillance footage, the Esmonds, wouldn't show them coming in ever. I mean, they could have been, of course, the, the footage doesn't start until 1135. I mean, the killers could have already been there by then. Um, but even if they came later, you know, they would, if they pulled in with the lights off, you wouldn't see anything on the camera. All you would see is the reverse lights when they then backed back out if they had the lights off. Becky says, were there any street lights on this street? If so, could any of this be a reflection off the cars driving by in addition to the headlights? I, you know, when we were there, I don't recall any. I did look through like Google Street View to look and see if there's any street lights. There doesn't appear to be. Uh, in the video footage, there doesn't appear to be. You see, um, there's a point is actually at 1235, two, about three minutes after, or one minute after the car drives from the cul de sac from the right to left, we see a light shut off, which we thought, and I didn't include this in the episode, but we thought this was something big. Like, as we see a car drive by, there's, there's kind of some weird refractions that are happening with the light as the car goes by. And then a minute later, the light in the Espen's front yard goes off. So we thought you know, they went and they shut that light off. They're trying to make the area dark. Uh, and we got pretty excited about that. And then I talked to Melanie about it. And she said the light that's in her front yard, there's a post light there, uh, which we could see from the street view and stuff. Uh, that's a gas light with like mantles. And she's like, no. And, and then she, she even asked her husband for me, do you ever recall something like it being broken or somehow it's because you can't just flip a switch. You got to find the gas valve and turn it off uh, and having to relight it. And he said, no, it's never, he's the only time he's ever lit it is when he himself shut it off to change mantles and stuff. And so we're really baffled by this light. And I was wondering again about street lights and looking again. And that's when Mrs. Esmond remembered they still to this day, every year at Christmas put rope lights uh, at Christmas time around the tree in their front yard. And those are on a timer, and they shut off about 12.30 at night. 
And so that's that's what it was. Is it was just the the light that we're seeing for the first uh, hour of the video is light coming off of those rope lights, the Christmas lights that were on the tree, and then at twelve thirty they shut off. And so with that, there's another concern about the lack of investigation. So the police have this video, and it shows something happening. Whether it's what I think happened or what a, an expert figures out happens, whatever it is, something's happening there. And then you see again right about the time that Jim's killed. You see the this light shut off. I investigated that and determined that it was irrelevant, but that should have been investigated. That the police should have done the same thing that I did. Why is there a light shutting off right smack dab in the middle of the time about when Jim was killed? What's going on? And to follow up on it, and and they didn't. Summer says. So does this mean a Brady violation or ineffective assistance of counsel or both, like in Adnan Syed's case? Definitely, it is not a Brady violation. Uh, the, the the state turned it over. The defense had this, so there's no Brady violation there. You know, there's there's three ways that evidence like this could help any person that's on appeal uh, in post conviction work like this. And one of the ways is if it was Brady, if the defense didn't turn it over, but they did, so that's not one. Uh, one another is if we find newly discovered evidence that can be entered in to claim actual innocence. This is, would not be considered newly discovered evidence because it existed and all parties had it. So just because you, you took a closer look at it, I don't think you could get that in as newly discovered evidence. And the third, as she mentioned, is ineffective assistance of counsel. And I don't, th- I don't think there's strong enough evidence there to, to make that claim. So in a scenario where, say it was... Like I was, I was right. It was absolutely obvious a car pulls in the driveway and a photogrammetry, not to, and that's not my word or somebody looking at it, but you know, if an expert reviews this and says, yes, no question about it, that's what that is. And then here's the person leaving and that was in the possession of the Seacrest, then that would be a, a very good claim for ineffective assistance of counsel because the defense had this, they reviewed it, they missed it, they didn't bring in an expert. And, but you know, with that, you have to prove that number one, they were, they they didn't do something they should have done, and secondly, that it would change the outcome of the trial itself. Uh, and so that that's a that's a tough burden uh, to bear. Personally, I want to make, make clear: like I I don't I don't think the Seacrest did a, a bad job with this at all. I mean, it's the file the way the file was delivered was in a like I said, it's an extremely choppy for, uh, format. In this little player that you play it on, you can't speed up, slow down with any fluidity. You can't split up the frame rate. It's hard to see. And the stuff we found came from us, you know, converting it and blowing it up to on a 27-inch monitor and speeding up and slowing down, speeding up and slowing down and adjusting lighting and contrast and all that so we, we could see things better. A solid, ineffective assistance of counsel claim would be, say, there's a video out there and it's eight hours long. And in the middle of the video, you see someone run up and stab the victim and then runs away. And the lawyers didn't catch it, and they didn't put it into trial. That would be an obvious ineffective assistance of counsel claim because there's clear and convincing evidence, exculpatory evidence on that video that the lawyer didn't catch. This, I think, is probably too convoluted. There's too much uh, up for interpretation. Now, if uh, a lawyer or if or if an expert were to review this and say, "Yes, this is absolutely this," and I would testify to this, then I think that. That that could potentially be a claim. Um, again, that that's but you know we're, there's a couple things dealing with legal standards there, and 
you know how we feel about the job that was done. I know a lot of people were like, you know, how did how did Mac miss, miss this? And and they talk about perjury with the police and this and that. As I said at the end of the episode, I closed with, and no one caught it. And and that's truly what I meant by that. I I don't believe there's anyone out there that that saw this video, saw clear evidence uh, of a killer going into the house and ignored it or hid it or anything like that. I think just nobody nobody caught it because it's hard to catch. And then and as you've heard from me, like even for me, what I thought I caught now, I'm not even sure uh, that's something that that I caught. But again, what this video does so for this investigation and moving forward. And hopefully to motivate the investigators, if Sandy's conviction is overturned, here is evidence that we can show that there was absolutely activity on that street. They weren't alone. We don't have proof of somebody walking into the house, but you know, there's with somebody looking at this with the proper technology and software and expertise, I, I do believe there is evidence in that video that there was activity not just out on the street, but at the Melgar's house from outside forces, outside people coming into the house, which completely destroys the state's narrative of the case and the fact that, you know, they, they didn't have a case that said Sandy's guilty because of this, 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 and this, because as you know, there is no direct evidence. There's no physical evidence. There's no eyewitness. There's certainly a ton of reasonable doubt in this case. Uh, and I, in my opinion, there's nothing but evidence that indicates that Sandy maybe could have done this with no evidence whatsoever that indicates that she did do this. And and as we heard the jury foreman say, you know, at the end of the day, what what made his decision and the jurors' decisions was, at the end of the day, the prosecutor's theory made the most sense, which is her saying, she's in the house, Jamie's in the house, Jamie's dead, Sandy's not, and there's no evidence anybody else came into the house, so it must have been her. Well, if there's evidence that someone was outside, someone did go to the house during that time frame, then that flips that narrative on its head. Jana says, would this be perjury for Doucet since he said there was nothing in the video? No, it wouldn't be perjury for anyone because, I mean, first of all, for it to be perjury, you would have to prove that he, and it wouldn't have been Doucet. I mean, Doucet was just kind of the messenger with this. I don't think Doucet ever actually viewed the video. It's a little hard to comp- to figure out from the trial transcripts. I mean, Curazal was the one that was documenting the stuff in the reports, and he was a lead investigator. But, I mean, you'd have to prove that he did watch it. He did see something exculpatory and then lied in the report. My guess is Carlzal never looked at the video. I think he just took the word that he heard, you know, in a game of telephone that uh, that the Esmond said it only covered the top part of their driveway or somebody said they said that because it's not in a recorded interview. And then it got to him and he just assumed that was the case and documented it as fact when in fact he just just like everything else in this case he just didn't do his job he didn't he should have reviewed it i think that anybody in their right mind looking at this case objectively as an investigator anybody would want to look closer at that video because there's clearly something going on outside there even if it's just the neighbors driving around but you that that's a lead that should be exhausted meaning to de- to ter- determine if you can explain the activity that was going outside that house. Because if you can't, now you're looking at another party coming into the house and Sandy likely isn't the right person. Dawn says, is there video of Jim and Sandy leaving home for dinner and their return home? No, there's not because the video starts at 1135 and Jim and Sandy returned like at 940, somewhere around there, 935, 940, closer to 940. Because, you know, we have the receipts. We know they went to the restaurant. 
We know they went to CVS. We have the receipts. There's witnesses to verify. There's there's video surveillance at, at um, CVS of Jim going in and buying the drink mixers and coming back. All indications are, and then you go home, and the receipt from Los Cucos and from CVS are there in the trash can. There's the bag from CVS. The drink mixers they, they were seen on video purchasing at CVS are, are laid out around the tub. And, you know, some of the discussions going on by people that believe that Sandy's guilty is amazing how when when they thought that this absolutely is a car pulling into the driveway at 12.05, now they flip the script and it's, well, Sandy mentioned in her interview she didn't get home till midnight. Mm-hmm. So she must have got home at midnight. It's like, it, it's any, and then maybe that's Sandy leaving to take things away from the house, even though there are, their narrative is that nothing was missing from the house. So what was she taking and where was she going? Um, the whole thing about her getting there at midnight, there's, it's, it, at some point she said, I think midnight we got home, and then she corrected that, and, and the receipts showed that that's not when they got home. They obviously got home at 940. There's no evidence that they got home any other time besides after CVS. So, that, I mean, that's, there's just nothing to that other than her slipping in there saying midnight at one time. Um, and then correcting that and, and, and explaining that they went, it was after CVS when they went home and she wasn't watching the time. But anyway, so we know that they got home around, uh, 940 ish between 940, 945. And the, the video surveillance starts at 1135. So they had already been home for almost two hours at the point where this video picks up. And that's, that, that's another interesting thing. Somebody mentioned Brady and I'm not suggesting this is what happened, but this does seem odd. Melanie told me that she um, down. So the way it works is it's all recorded on a DVR, the camera, and she downloaded uh, the the footage for the police. And she says she was working off the time frame from 10 p.m. till 4:30 p.m. to get the footage. And she said she was having trouble with the DVR uh, transferring the files. So she was, that's why they were all in these one hour chunks. But the strange thing is that it starts at 11:35. Um, it seemed like she thought at the beginning, she assumed she had said she had given them 10 to 11, 11 to 12, 12 to one on and on and on. But all we have is 1135 and on. So, but when I asked her about it, cause that's when I thought this is Brady, she gave them 10 o'clock on and they only gave the defense 1135 on. But when I asked her about it, she said that she, she cannot be certain. She thinks that that, that was what she was working on. She would have started at 10 and worked her way out. Um, but she cannot be certain enough to like write an affidavit or anything to say that it was from 10 o'clock on. So that's, that's just, that's just up in the air, but there, there was, it was a constantly recording surveillance camera. So there was, there was recording all the time, recording to a DVR. And then she just had to download that footage, but we do not have any footage of the Melgars arriving home, which would have been really helpful because then we would absolutely have something to compare to. Uh, and these other videos, if we if we if we know they came home at nine forty, and we see a car pull in the driveway, we would then would we would know what that looks like. So there's no chance of us coming up with uh, an earlier tape. No, there's not. I mean, she she told me that she wished she had kept the DVR and kept the files or kept copies for herself, but she didn't. She just assumed that when she passed them off to law enforcement, that they would actually do something with them. Vicky says, "Just a comment about the headlights. Now that I've heard and seen the security video." They pulled in fast, or at least at normal speed. This was not a slow drive-by. They had decided where they were turning in ahead of time. If I would be canvassing a neighborhood, it seems like I would drive slow checking out the houses. So they knew where they were going. Yeah, well, I mean, that seemed odd to me also. It's just a little strange that they would just drive right into the driveway with headlights on. However, it does kind of line up with, you know, the time. So Sandy said it seemed like it was about two hours. 
the dog started barking. If someone pulled into the driveway right then, certainly that would get the dogs barking. We're going to be covering this week uh, on Sunday some more information about the Kingwood home invasion and another home invasion uh, connected with uh, Oscar Garcia. There's been some developments there. We did get a production, an open records production from uh, Harris County on that just yesterday or day before yesterday. So we've started reviewing those files. And there's some pretty interesting information in there. And even if those people weren't the ones connected to the Melgars, it's still very telling about how these types of burglars work and can answer some some questions for us on that. But suffice it to say, it's not uh, standard practice for a vehicle just to, that are going to be doing this kind of home invasion to just pull up into the driveway with their lights on. No. Keeley says, can we confirm that the timestamp shown on the footage is accurate and showing the correct time? I assume that's been done, but just want to check. I mean, there's really no way to know. I mean, according to Miss Esmond, they are accurate. The one thing that we do have to go on is what I mentioned earlier, which is she said that the timer on the uh, the rope lights around the tree are timed usually to shut off at 1230. And we do have that light shutting off at 1235 on the camera. So, I mean, that's it's a, it's a pretty good indication that they're at least very close. Greta says, do we think Colleen Barnett and law enforcement knew this video existed and covered it up? Or do we think they didn't know or realize its importance? I mean, it is a little strange that it didn't get used at trial. I mean, it's not now that I've seen it. But no, I, yeah, I'm guessing they didn't. They did not see anything on there. Didn't see anything significant. Maybe even didn't watch it. And, and along those lines, you know, I, I want to make clear, too, just based on what I'm seeing on social media, People talked about perjury with the detectives and uh, Brady violations and, you know, the, the crooked prosecutors hiding this uh, and, and even um, uh, Sam Carroll from Truth is Justice hiding, it, hiding this from everybody like there was a big conspiracy. I want to make clear that I'm not saying there was a conspiracy with any of these people. When I was explaining that part, I was just explaining why I was motivated to, to look further into this. Because now, regardless, let's assume none of them knew it was there. They they didn't see any any incriminating information on these videos. But if you look at if you step back and put yourself in my shoes, you have documented police reports that say it only shows the driveway. I have the the owner of the footage saying that's not true. It shows part of the road. And then we have the prosecution didn't use it at trial. And if it showed the road and they didn't use it at trial, surely it doesn't show nothing happening outside or they would have used it because that would have helped their case. And then, as I said, when I went to Sam's website, I, I, I saw on the social media that he absolutely had opened and viewed the video. He would posted screenshots of it. And it's the only thing left off of the website, uh, which that could be, you know, just a, a slip of the mind or didn't think it was relevant or whatever it is. But again, put yourself in my shoes looking at that. All these things are adding up. That website and podcast is very, very pro-prosecution. Sandy's guilty and everything I say is a lie. And, and that one video is not on their website. That, as you can imagine, combined with everything else, led me to believe there could be something significant on this video. It's odd that it, that it isn't posted when everything else is. It's odd that the prosecution didn't use it. It's odd with the, that the police said that it only showed the driveway when Melanie's telling me that it didn't. It showed part of the street. So just a combination of all those things, that was the process for me to say, I need to figure out how to open this video. I got to get my hands on it and see what's there. Because I, much like most people, based on the police reports and the fact that I couldn't get the file open because I'm an idiot, 
I wasn't worried about it because all the police reports said that there's nothing there. So I wasn't concerned about it. But I just want to make that clear. I, I'm not saying there's some kind of vast conspiracy. I'm not saying that Colleen Barnett or Sean Carazal or, or Doucet or, or Sam or whoever saw this and saw exculpatory evidence and intentionally decided to hide it. I'm just saying that was the process that led me to continue looking further to view the video. Patrick says, what was the actual time of death in the coroner's report? He's talking about Jim here. And how does it match up with the vehicle being seen in the security camera footage? The coroner didn't give a time of death. So we had to kind of work around known factors, as I did back in episode 11. I did it again here in episode 42, um, adding in the, the calculation of the blood alcohol content. Time of death is not, as I've said before, it's not like you see on TV. You don't have Ducky coming up to the body and putting a thermometer in his liver and 10 seconds later can tell you within five minutes of when the person died. That's not how it works. Now, it's based on when was the last known time they were alive, when were the last seen, and then we can narrow that window using some medical evidence as we've done with, uh, with lividity, with rigor mortis, with stomach contents, with blood alcohol level. All of that factors in and starts to narrow down that window. Uh, where, you know, in Jim's case, we, you know, the window starts with 10 p.m. when we know he's alive and 4.30 p.m. when he was found dead, and then you start narrowing down from there. All that being said, in my opinion, I think that Jim was likely killed between 11.30 to 1 in the morning. I think probably closer to, because of the blood alcohol content and the stomach contents, I think it was probably midnight till 1 a.m. But that's I'm, that's not my expert opinion. That's just my opinion based on the research that I've done and, and trying to figure it out is, is probably somewhere in that hour-ish. And of course, there's give or take on either side of that. Iva says, is there any way the cell tower dump might still be obtainable? I don't know. I've mentioned that to the attorneys and um, it's something to be looked into. Today. Of course, they would have to file a subpoena and get a judge to approve that. Um, but I've, I've been told by people that work in that industry that that information should still be available now, even seven years later. Nicole says, do you think it's possible that John the Renner's kids are involved at all? We had a handful of kids teenage age and an older daughter that may also be the one to take the lead in everything. Could be pissed about what's happening to them and their father in the situation they were in. I don't know. I mean, that would be sheer 100% speculation. I mean, we've covered everything we know about John as far as he, he's concerned or connected to this crime at all. Personally, I don't think that, and it's just my own personal hypothesis based on, on my investigation, I don't think that John likely had anything to do with the murders. But that, that being said, I think it's still worth getting, uh, possibly getting his DNA compare. You know, we're, we're getting full DNA profiles now of the evidence, so we need to find people to compare those two. And certainly I would, I would include him in that list as well as Claudia and, and, and Siniad and even Chad and, and some of these other people. That's not to say that I think they did it, but it's just we could at least rule them out, you know, and and, and compare them because it's going to take uh, it's it's going to take science and forensics to solve this case. So we got to we need to through investigative process figure out whose DNA to test it against. Ashley says, "Can you please share the info about the letter writing campaign to get Sandy the medical treatment and medications that she needs but isn't receiving?" Thanks. Yes, uh, we were going to do this last week, but I had to record early because we were leaving for CrimeCon. Uh, so Sandy is not getting the medical care that she needs right now. She is in the medical unit, but she's not getting the medication she needs. She's been having trouble breathing. She's passed out on a number of occasions. 
Uh, she's had a lot of pain, and and you know, there's, from the sounds of it, from what Lisa, they're they're giving her Advil for these things, and she has prescription medication she needs to take. Nothing's being done. So e- even if you're not normally on social media, go to uh, either the Free Sandy Melgar Facebook page or the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page, uh, where it's posted there as well. Uh, but there is a post there uh, that explains all the information. There's a sample of a cover letter. And there's all the addresses and email addresses that you need to send letters out. Please get involved. This is something that you can do, and it won't take up a lot of your time. And it doesn't cost anything other than maybe the cost of a stamp. But uh, please help Sandy out. This worked last time, remember, where our letter-writing campaign triggered Sandy to be moved to the medical facility. And we need to do it again and let them know that she's got an army of supporters behind her that she needs to be cared for. Her medical needs need to be taken care of. And that's not just her, that's anybody. I don't care if people in prison and they're guilty, they're still human beings and they still have the right to basic medical care. So please go to either the Free Sandy Melgar page or the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page and get a hold of that post where it has the sample letters and where to send them. And let's try to get Sandy the medical care that she needs. All right, that's it for the follow-up this week. Thanks everybody for your thoughts and theories. Yeah, thanks everyone, and and again, I wanna I wanna reiterate my apologies for. I, I guess the best way I could put it is is really overstating the position on the the video surveillance of the car pulling in the driveway. Uh, it was absolutely not intentional. You know, when I came across as being one hundred percent certain, I was one hundred percent certain. But I, I appreciate you all putting up with that and and uh, giving me a little grace on that one. It, it was definitely. Not my intention to mislead anyone, and that's why I put the corrected video out right away. And um, I want to address it here because that's the last thing I want to do is mislead anyone. Our goal here is to find the truth, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And we're going to get right back into the investigation on Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And all of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Rachel Timberman, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Katherine Chrisman, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. And if you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. 
For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.